Canterbury fails. Their Canterbury fails. Probably never read them. The Canterbury fails. Might be moralistic or boring. Might be rhetorically soaring. Their Canterbury fails. Yeah. Happy New Year's, everybody. Yeah, well, welcome back. Indeed, it is now 2024. 2024, I... a year that is surely going to be better going to be just like 2023 um i have no idea but i do know that um i was really happy to see the end of 2023 i was i'm i'm nervous about the beginning of 2024 but you know what we are going to uh settle into the canterbury fails because even when the rest of the world is falling apart the canterbury fails is here for you. That's that is true, right? We're like the we're like we are the the, the port in the storm. We are safe harbor. <laughs> that we is are, indeed we are constant our role. And yeah. um, I have to say, it's it's we're we're up in the um, the sort of like mountaintop lair of Doctor Coley yeah. here, it's and nice uh, here. there's a just Air's a thin. ton of snow. Yeah. Uh, coming over here, I only went knee-deep into a few piles of slush. I have been pulled over by our third podcaster several times uh, over the course of the past couple days, and they have done a terrible job uh, of clearing these sidewalks, and they are icy as all get out. So be careful if you want to be a live audience member uh, here. (laughs) If you you just are dropping by, um, you know, be sure to watch your steps. So we are back back with uh, the continuation of Season 3. Yeah, and uh, in this today's, and it's my turn. It is a Middle English text. It's a delightful little number that I will let David Coley introduce. So today's Canterbury Fail mm. is well, it actually goes by various names, but the edition that we are looking at uh, is Jack and his stepdame, or Iac oh. and his stepdame. Uh, this edition of Jack and His Step Dame is the 2013 Teams METS edition by, uh, edited by Melissa Furrow, and it's based on Oxford Bodleian Library MS Rawlinson C86. Mm. That manuscript is a miscellany of literary, historical, and devotional texts. They are almost entirely in Middle English. There's a smattering of Latin, but they are mostly in Middle English, and they are from the mid-15th century, as far as we can tell. Um, the manuscript contains, and it's, 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 it's bound, it's four separate parts, um, and the part that contains Jack and his stepdame yeah. um, contains instructional and comportment verse. It has a Middle English translation of part of Higdon's Polychronicon, but interestingly enough, it is not Trevisa's translation, which is the only one that I actually knew existed. Someone else translated Someone that? Someone else translated that. <laughs> um, and particularly translated the parts that had to do with a kind of Galfridian history. And there, there is... It seems like that would be a fail. Uh, it it may be, and I, I will I will look into it. I'll see, <laughs> if, I can, I'll see if I can find the text. It's not the whole Polychronicon, but it's just a, it's a section. I, you know what? I will. I'm going to make a oh note my of God. this here. Look at um, that future material being discovered as we speak. A non-Polychronicon. All right. Mm. Um, there mm. are some devotional writings. There are some beast fables. There are a few human and equine medical recipes. There is a Balad morale by, we think, Gower. There are When in doubt. Yeah, well, no, no, no. It gets, it gets less uh, even in doubt than that. Um, there are two of the more stringent Canterbury Tales, the Clerks and the Prioresses. Oh, Those are the ones that they decided to keep. Clerk and, clerk and Prioress. Yeah. Okay, that is some interesting literary context for it is. this. And there are approximately 
20,000 lines of Lydgate on top of it. <laughs> so the inevitable uh, raft the, of Lydgate. It's, the, just sort of, it's like a Lydgate chaser. Right? That is, by the way, the name of your next book. The What's Inevitable that? Lydgate. Yeah, I, I'm going to get a hit in trouble with people. Lydgate had a sort of moment. Is his moment over? Can we talk shit about Lydgate again? We, of course we can. And the people who do Lydgate, they would love to hear more shit I know. About it. it's, it's, I Keep, know. You know, any press is good. <laughs> there it is. So anyway, this was bound with a couple other um, late 15th and, and in one case early 16th century choirs to compose a single codex. Um, and Julia Boffy and Carol Meal have done some really interesting work on the history of the manuscript itself. Okay. Um, and they suggest that this miscellaneous is a production that is situated squarely in what in the 15th century we would now call the middle class and they've used sort of mm. names and descriptions inscribed within the book to even situate it within uh, with two London merchants um, Richard Kelly and Richard Hill both of whom oh. are, are grocers it turns out and in her the edition two gross dicks <laughs> <laughs> Come on, man. We haven't even gotten started yet. Um, and in her edition, Furrow writes this, and, and I actually think this is one of the really interesting aspects of this work, and it's something that I think we can talk about. Okay. That the variety of types of texts included here, and you need to think about, you know, why are these the two Canterbury Tales that are included? Why these beast fables? Why, uh, you know, recipe for taking care of your horse and also one for your gout? Mm. That kind of thing. That these variety of texts give glimpses into the tastes, needs, and opportunities for collection in the households in which they were assembled. And I think that's got to be true here. I mean, if you're thinking about this as a middle-class production, uh, where they're going to have very few books, presumably, this offers a, a real range sure. of material. Sure. Um, and and it's everything from, everything from the beast fable to the medical. So it's an interesting thing. Cool. Um, that's not only true, interestingly enough, of the Ralston C86 version of this poem. Jack and his stepdame, unlike many fails and indeed unlike many medieval texts, exists in many, 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 many manuscripts. Oh, it does. There's a lot of Jack and his stepdames running around. Oh. And the history of this text is actually an interesting aspect of its production as well. So what we're looking at is one of the earlier witnesses to Jack and his stepdame, um, but it uh, you know, it, it sort of continues through the 16th century. Okay. It gets printed into chapbooks and it gets printed into sort of cheap um, paper, you know, uh, paper volumes. Uh, it's, it's printed by Winkin' DeWord, mm. among other people. It appears in the 16th century. It, it gets referenced, weirdly enough, in sermons. It gets referenced in other literary texts. It gets it gets sort of talked about, out. right? I mean, there's there's okay. there's lots of evidence of a kind of afterlife for this. Um, in the in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries, it appears in uh, publication or produced by publishers as far flung from London as Dublin, New York. Boston, this thing finds its way to the colonies, right? And it this floats raises around a, here. This raises so, a, a, an interesting question. Why? <laughs> no, well, not why, because I think now I know why. Um, how is this a fail then? Like, it's literally it has a, a long afterlife. Like, no medieval text has a I will talk end. about its status as a fail, but I think one of the reasons that it hasn't gotten the kind of critical attention that a lot of other works have gotten is frankly snobbery. Um, this is this is this is a solidly sort of middle class bourgeois book. This is not oh. something that's going to be floating around. This is not literature. This is this is. It was not a copy. It of was Henry not, the Fourth. No, it wasn't. Wardrobe. I mean, it, 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 
maybe there was. It doesn't. It has gotten more attention than some of the some of the texts that we've looked at, but recently it has not received the kind of critical attention that would enable it to avoid our scrutiny. Mm. Um, and so it's you know it, it it's a bona fide bestseller, but it's also a fail at the same time. There's a lot of those. Yeah. You know. Yeah. There's a lot of those even now. Yeah. Oh yes. <laughs> and and you know who's going to be writing about. You know the Da Vinci Code in 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 six hundred years or something like that. Oh, wow, right? Dan Brown takedown here. I know. I know. If, if, if Dan Brown's our listener, I feel. Like hey, Dan. Just sorry, you buddy. Know. We're uh, joking. We're totally joking. No, it's a great book. The version that we're looking at is one of the earliest versions of this tale, as I mentioned. Um, there is at least one earlier version that we know about. Oh. Um, uh, it is cited in uh, M.S. Cotton Vitalius D12, but we cannot read it because right now it is a box of ashes. Yeah. Um, and so we know that there was an earlier witness, and it's possible that it is the basis for this, um, but we only have the index entry. We don't have gotcha. the tale itself. Gotcha. In terms of print editions, as I mentioned, there were tons. There were tons um, that were that were sort of produced, and, and eventually you get to the sort of you know big like pieces of ancient poetry and remains of the early popular poetry of England, those kind of things. Sure. And they're in all of those, basically. Okay. It's in Ritson's Pieces of Ancient Poetry, it's in Hazlitt's Remains, it's in Zupitza's Archiv für das Stadium der Nürnsprachen und Literaturen. There's an EETS edition in 1907. Um, and then in the later parts of the 20th and early 21st century, Melissa Furrow gets her hands on it twice, once in 1985 in 10 15th century comic poems, and in the edition that we're looking at here, which is 10 boards. Claim to Canterbury Fail status. Listening. Okay. Post 2004. And that's it's a new where year. we are. Now. It's Happy a new, new year. year. The 20 years has moved, which might get me one really good one, maybe. Oh, that's good. I'm, I'm, I'm in more trouble, more and more trouble finding these things. So um, I um, highly recommend the anonymous punic, probably chronic on this. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to look. I'm, I'm excited <laughs> about that. Um, so there is a really interesting article uh, in a in a, uh, a, a volume published by Brill, uh, charmingly entitled Kids Those Days, uh. Uh, Children in Medieval Literature, uh, called Puerile Justice, the Voice of a Boy in Jack and His Stepdame. Um, and this is by Melissa Rain. Um, and what Melissa Rain looks at is Jack as a kind of child hero and how his voice provides an opportunity to explore sort of the relationship of living children's voices and mm. literary ones. So how do we recover and what are the stakes of recovering the voice of the child um, in these texts? Um, there is another article in uh, 2002 uh, by Hannah Bauer, All to Ragged and to Rent, um, Unity and Fragmentation in Jack and His Stepdame, and mm. that's in Medium Avum, and that really tries to look at images of tearing, ripping, of which there are many um, in this, um, and it proposes that as a kind of structural means cool. of, of of dealing with this. There is a kind of 0. 0.5 or maybe even a 0. 0.25 here mm. too, um, mm. which is that J. Patrick Hornbeck II. Oh, the second. Yes, not to be confused with the third or the first. Yeah. It's the middle, the sort of redheaded middle I love child the of the third, Hornbeck The family. third's work is really, ex but the first is foundational. But it is. Let's, what did second have to yeah, say? Yeah, the second, uh, the second uh, as, as would befit his again, number, Jake, publishes. Jake, if you're our listener. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm really, we're really burning it down today. <laughs> I just, I've got no, um, nothing left to give. He publishes movie. on anti-fraternalism and the Upland series. Oh. So it's not really about this, but what he proposes is that Jack Upland, that the name Jack 
has a kind of resonance that would have made and that this work may in some way be a kind of any unspoken Jack. analog to the Jack Upland series and, and that the name Jack and, and he finds another name um, I think Torben or Tobin in one of the versions of this not the version that we're looking at okay. that is also in the Upland series and so he's trying to draw some I mean we don't get anybody else's name no even though we Jack. do have two other main characters Stepdame or three Friar Father yeah, that's it. The old man. I mean, but oh, I guess but it's man. all you know. That old man though is never going to be named. He's no, the, no, he's no, the no. like hi, hello. This is a folk tale. Welcome to my show, and then he leaves. That's it. Yeah, that's it. Okay. Before two thousand four. Okay. And I'm just giving a quick and dirty, and then we're going to get to this race. It's, it's been around for four hundred years. I really don't need to go all the way through everything before twenty thousand. You're not going to go all the way through, but there. But but it is worth noting that this would not have been a fail had we been doing this in the year twenty ten. This is that there was a a, a sort of <laughs> flurry of activity mm-hmm. that surrounded a lot of there was a, there was a sort of uh, in the nineties and and very early two thousands there was a sort of uptick in work on children's literature. Yes, I remember um, that well. You know, it surrounded Orm. Dan Klein did some of this work. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of people that that were working on this and and it and this text found some purchase there. So you have uh, the article by Brian Lee, seen and sometimes heard, piteous and pert children in medieval English literature. Oh, Jack Nicholas is pert. Nicholas Orm's Children in Literature in Medieval England and Medium yes. Avum and Richard Cakehoffer's uh, Magic in the Middle Ages, which isn't about children, but obviously is about magic. And, There's something and magic in this tale. Magical in that. Sure. But what's most interesting to me of the sort of pre-fails um, is, is uh, Carl Lindahl's Jacks, the name, the tales, the American tradition. And Lindahl identifies what he calls a Jack tale as a kind of folk tale type that he mm. sees as sort of culminating in things like Jack and the Beanstalk and Jack the Giant Killer and all of these kind of figures. And this would comport with the idea that Jack is a meaningful name for the Upland series yeah, as well. Yeah, I was about to say. Um, so. But he sees this winding its way into the U.S. He sees this winding its way into um, stories that become folk tales and folk stories and that folk are sort songs. of adopted here and folk songs that are adopted here. Um, and it is worth noting, and he cites this, that the, um, that the folk motif, uh, the dance among thorns, is actually a listed folk motif in the Arne Thompson Uther Index of Folktale Types. It is number 592. Oh, 592. Um, don't not don't get it confused with 591, which is the dance among the brambles, or 590, which is the dance among the heather. I would never think. Don't. To, I mean, it's don't. a really yeah. Brambles, so, briars. Fuck you. I know, right? No, you don't mess <laughs> with those things. <laughs> it is. It's, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, I, All right. Um, so anyway, right. that's. I mean, there's there's actually a rich history for this fail, but we are we are we have found a window. In you which, you we, I, have found I did a window nothing. In which this fail is still a fail. So let's drink to this. Okay, let's drink to this. So this was an interesting uh, exercise for me as a cocktail cocktailer on this on this um, piece. So um, as David will probably get to when he talks about the content of the piece, it's <laughs> the summary of its plot, per- perhaps. Um, there is in this tale a uh, a you're gonna drink it now. Oh, wow, uh, a character who gets a hold of a magic pipe, and whenever he plays the pipe. Everyone has to dance, and they can't not dance, right? They can't not dance. Right, exactly. So I'm just going to leave it at that because there's lots more going on, but this is one thing. So I started delving into the world of cocktails, first coming across, uh, and this might be something we talk about as well, um, the Pied Piper. Yep. 
of which there are several versions of the Pied Piper cocktail, some of which are repugnant. Then I moved on to the Magic Flute, right? But that's more Mozartian. Um, and the, mo- the, the Magic Flute, there was a viable Magic Flute cocktail, uh, but I didn't, I didn't like it. It didn't seem to fit. And then I found the one that fits. All right. Now, because this is a narrative that involves uncontrollable dancing, among other things. Among other things. Among other, other uncontrollable things. Mm. Um, I settled on a cocktail known as the Tarantella. Nice. The Tarantella, um, which is uh, complicated, but it is a musical piece. It is also a dance. It is also a well-known pizza commercial in the mid-Atlantic states in the 80s. I know that that's news to me. I did not. You mean... no longer have to wander to a restaurant or to Rome for the finest pizza ever you make easily at home. Real Italian okay. flavor enough to know. make the family smile. It's a real Italian pizza in the Betty Crocker style. No way. Way. That's terrible. Well, I mean, could I have just made that up? No, it's 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 no. been wedged in my head for like thirty five years. Clearly, it's occupying some real estate you might use for something else. <laughs> nope. Okay. Betty Crocker so Pizza's guy. The, the Tarantella, besides being Betty Crocker Pizza, as well as a musical piece, Italian folk music, dancing music, and in a dance named after the music, or vice versa, it also describes a it's also related to oh there's Appa, he's here. Tarantism. Oh, which is a state of uncontrollable dancing, which is often understood to be brought on by a spider bite, mm. tarantula. A tarantula. Um, so it, there's this complex of things around dancing, uncontrollable dancing, dancing mania, um, all of which lie behind the tarantella, which well, is why I brought it on. Now, the other reason that it is appropriate is that this little narrative yeah. appears like this drink to be very light. Yeah. And sweet at the oh, top. But underneath. But really deep down, it is dark so listener, and disturbing. You obviously cannot see this through the podcast, uh, but what I'm looking at here is a beautiful drink. It's in a nice cut crystal glass. There's a single big ice cube. There is a orange rind on the top, but the uh, main liquid is a kind of straw color. I don't know. It's a whiskey. Is it a whiskey? It's, a, a, bourbon. Scotch, it's a bourbon. Some other things. Okay. It's a beautiful sort of straw colored. And then at the very bottom, there is a thin layer of a sort of reddish brown darkness. Darkness. And I don't know what that reddish brown darkness is. Are you going to tell me or are you going to Do you want to know right now? I mean, I kind of want to know. Am I supposed to stir and drink or am I supposed to get to the bottom? I I don't know. I've never had it. Okay. So it's, it's the, so there's, so the main drink is a combination of a few things, but mostly bourbon and Amaro. Nice. And then the top, there is a light citrusy spritz, that light effervescent fun of this narrative, which is uh, an orange, uh, uh, what's it called? Contro. Okay, so right. that was what you spritzed on. That's what earlier. I spritzed. Okay. But at the very base is the dark, under seamy underbelly of this narrative, this poem, and this drink, which is an Angostura syrup. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. So it's going to be bitter. It should be like the tail. Okay. Drink. Cheers. Chin chin. Mm. Oh, it tastes good. I like that a lot. It is bitter. The. Um, the the I haven't got the, the Amaro and the and the and the whiskey does not it, it it's Ooh, I like that actually yeah it's 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 it is the kind of drink that you I'm wondering what it's going to be like. going for I'm I'm using my orange rind to stir in the syrup a okay bit to see what's going to happen here I really do like Amaros there's a really good Amaro bar in um, 
Vancouver. Bar Zuzu, have you been there? No. It's worth going. And that's pretty good. All right, I'm gonna stir in the syrup. It might change everything. It actually sweetens it. The syrup's sweet, but there's a lot of ango in it. Yeah, I mean, it's, I actually, I would recommend doing what I just did. It's really nice. Okay. It brightens it up. Interestingly enough, even though it is Angostura bitters, it's that's that's delicious. All right. Anyway, mm. that's the drink, the Tarantella. That's nice. Welcome to the Canterbury Fails. All right. Well, as we, oh, that does change. Things. It's good. It's yeah, good. It's pretty good. It's drinkable. Strong. Mm. It's it's mostly just pure bourbon. Yep. And amaro, but whatever. Okay. You know, it's Friday. So tell me, what happens in? Yock on his stepdom. Yock on his stepdom? I don't know why we've turned this into a German poem, but that's... What happens in Jack and his stepdom? Here's what happens. Jack, and I'm just going to give you the quick plot synopsis. Very then quick. We can, then we can talk about this. But yeah. Jack has a father who loves him and a stepmother who doesn't. We yeah. know this from fairy tales. It, it really his does. mom dies. His mom his dies. biological mom Yeah, dies. and it, it actually gets a little bit confusing because the... Um, the tale has no well, interest well, the, in keeping We're it told that the father has had three wives. Yeah. Right? And I think we only deal with two of them unless the one at the end is a third. Right? No, I think the end of the one is the chastised step. That's what I thought too, but where's the third? Why have we been given three? It, I guess it doesn't matter. He's had three wives... Jack's mother has died. Jack's father dotes on him, but Jack's stepdame Evil. is jealous of him. him. She doesn't like him. She doesn't like that the father gives him attention. All that good stuff. So Jack's stepmother prevails upon Jack's father to send him working in the fields as a cowherd to earn his keep. And this Jack does, and he's sent out into the fields... And it turns out that his stepmother has packed him the shittiest possible lunch. On purpose. On purpose to torment like when him you further. Once, right? once. My mom, you know, God bless her, making my lunch every day mm. when I was in like grade four. But I remember she once sent me a peanut butter and alfalfa sprout sandwich. Mm. Not good. Did not go well. I had a period. Um, I had a period where my my pure parents, forgetfulness probably. Oh no, mine was willful. Oh, my parents. A punishing um, lunch. Well, I I was. Um, you'll be surprised to learn I had a little um, hyperactivity, uh, <laughs> and and there was a Listener, there was a there was a, I am not. there was a brief there was a brief moment when my parents tried to feed me all kinds of things that didn't involve sugars. Oh. and so like I went in one day and it was like. Barley bread. It was like the Pierce Plowman lunch. Like it was oh. barley bread. It was like seventeen pieces of celery. You know, nuts. Right, and all my friends are eating lunch. Hey, you guys want to trade? No, it did not Anyone? go well. That did not last long, mercifully. <laughs> right. It did nothing to help me. Um, so anyway, Jack goes out into the fields with his hyperactivity disorder. Terrible lunch. lunch. Well, so the dad asks and says, or the mom says, "Can we get rid of the boy?" And the dad's like, "You know what? I'm gonna start sending him out with the cow herd." Right. Jack goes with his bad lunch out to herd the cows. What happens out there? So Jack decides that he doesn't want to eat anything, so he nibbles at his lunch. It's gross. And it turns out that a a, a, a hungry beggar happens by. Old man. Uh, an old man, indeed. And Jack offers the old man. Or the, the old man says, "Look, do you have any food? I'm really hungry." Jack says, "Yeah, I've got this. It's not great, but you know what? It's better than nothing at all." And so Jack gives the old man his food. The old man eats the food, and the old man does what any old man in a good fairy tale does. Which Hell says, yeah. Jack, I'm going to give you three boons, three wishes. Enjoy. So Jack is like a kid, right? Jack is not wishing for, you know, the world as wealth or eternal life or any of that. We don't have to do the whole, like, no. rules thing. Jack wants things that a boy would want. Jack wants first a bow and arrow. Yeah. And the old man is like, I'm going to give you a bow and arrow, and you know what? It's going to grow with you. It's always going to fit. You're never going to run out of arrows, and you'll always hit your mark. 
Yeah, so because what I like is that Jack asks for just a regular. He bow just and wants. Arrow. He just wants a stick and a string. But the but the magic old man is like, no, bro, we're giving you super bow and arrow. Yeah, so, so he's what? got super bow and arrow, and then he's like, sweet, I love that. Number two, what else do you want? I get bored. I like music. I want a pipe that will play music. Old man once again takes he, that wish. He next levels. He levels it up. Amps it up. So he gives him a pipe. Not only is the pipe always in tune and plays beautiful music, it also forces those who hear it to get up and dance a jolly dance. They can't not do it. They can't not dance. Yep. And then the old man's like, what's your third wish? Jack is like, I can't actually That's, think of anything I got the two now. things I want. I got the things I want. And the guy is Could have like, asked for a better lunch. He could have, but he didn't. He's not that bright. And so he, the old man says, look, you've got to take three wishes. This is the way this works. And so Don't you Jack understand is like, the rules? I don't know what to do. And he says, so my he says, mom. here's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to read this section because I oh. want to give a sort of sense of what this sounds like. So here's what Jack says. Um... The little boy said full sown, this is line 112. The little boy said full sown, I have a stepmother at home. She is a shrew to me. She is a shrew to me. Yep. When me father gooes me mate, she will the devil had me check. When my father gives me food, she wishes the devil had given it to me, right? She starteth so in me fast. When she looketh on me so, yef she meet let a rap go, that meet ring all the plaza. So what Jack wishes for, for his third wish, is that every time his stepmother looks at him with violence or mischief anger. or anger or ready to scold him, that she blasts an enormous fart yes. so that everybody Everyone. laughs and it diffuses that violence into flatulent, scatological humor. And the old man is like, done. done. And that lays the groundwork for the story. So... You know, things proceed apace. Jack pipes home the animals. He does a really good job. His father gives him a chicken leg, a capon leg, right? Because he's done mm, such a good job so bringing hot. the animals mm. home. And he pipes them home like the Pied Piper of Hamlet. That's and the I stepmother heard. is pissed about this because she doesn't like Jack. And she looks at him. And when she looks at him... <laughs> exactly. And everybody laughs. And then she looks at him again. And it happens again. Yeah. And she knows something's up because she can't control this. And these are not normal farts. These are supernatural like farts. They're like thunderdunt. as Chaucer <laughs> would say. And so she... She gets all pissed, okay? So that's sort of the end of episode one. Enter a friar. The friar is a friend of the mother. Stepmom. Interestingly enough, and we can talk about this, there is no sort of romantic interest between the friar and the stepmother, and that is unusual for a fablio. There might be a hint of it, but it's not the main feature here. But the stepmother basically says, look, I know something's up with Jack to this friar. I can't beat him because every time I come near him and look at him, I fart and everybody laughs. So will you go out and do it, she says to the friar. Friar says, sure, babe, I'll go out and do it. He goes out the next day as Jack is out with his animals. He interrogates Jack. Jack says, what's it to you, what I've done to my mother? Check out my bow and arrow. He distracts him by using his bow and arrow and, and you know, doing shoots like, a bird. incredible shots at birds that are really far away and he doesn't miss. Eventually... When the uh, friar is distracted, he plays his pipe and the friar goes into a dance that he cannot stop. And he's dancing in the thorns. He's dancing in the briars. He dances off his clothes. He's ripped. His ass is bare. He has no Blood shirt. is streaming Blood. down and him. he is experiencing. He's going through it, man. And he is hurting. It's not good. Right? And so then he knows that something's up. He goes back. <laughs> he rats Jack out. And eventually Jack is forced to sort of 
give a demonstration of his flute. But in this demonstration, everybody in the village gets up to dance. But it's, first, I, the friar says, I don't want to hear this. Tie me to mm. a pole. That's right. Tie Odysseus me, and the sirens. Yeah. Right? Tie, Tie me, me to, to a, a post. post so I don't freak out. So they do that. So yeah. now the stage is set for what is a riotous ending, and yeah. it is exactly what you'd expect. Jack plays. The entire village is up dancing uncontrollably. The friar, stop. who has been tied to a post, Thrashing. is smashing his head back and like, bloody. He's literally he's, headbanging. He is. He's, he's bleeding from the wrists where he's been tied to the yep. post. Yep. And the stepmother keeps farting because she's pissed, and she keeps looking at Jack askance. Finally... Jack lets everybody off the hook. He asks his dad, he says, Dad, can I stop? And the dad's like, you should. Please stop. Right? (laughs) And so Jack stops. And and then everything ends. And the the friar leaves forever. The friars leave. Yeah, and the stepmom is nice to him for the rest of his life. So that's the story. It's a weird one. Where do we go from here? Uh, So many places Mm. we can go. So many places we can go. This is good. It's growing on me. Oh, yeah, it's strong. Yeah. Um, I'm going to start with... You're saying that the unusualness of the friar not being romantically entangled with the stepmom, which I agree. There's no, there's only kind of one hint that I saw of it, which was at 183. Um, after that, ye uh, will ye hear, that though into that house come a frere that lay there all nicht. Yeah. So he goes and he spends the night at the house. It's a little dicey, but really you're correct. What I'm more interested in is this, and this is a weird question. Um... <laughs> Is this anti-fraternal? Is this an anti-fraternal text? Like, it doesn't do a lot of the same sort of mocking of a friar that we would see in anti-fraternal texts, you know, like we find in Chaucer. Right. Right? So, um, but on the other hand, the friar is kind of the bad guy and gets punished. Yep. But I'm going to suggest this question. Can we recuperate a reading of this poem that is sympathetic to the friar. He comes in, the mom asks him a favor, he does do he does agree to beat the boy. See, this is this is That's where I not struggle, good. Right? I mean and, and But so, then he is tortured. Like it is Oh no. The poem is very explicit about how grisly grizzlily he suffers. Yeah. Not just once. Twice. 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 So you're like I I found myself in the shockingly weird position of being somewhat sympathetic to the friar. Like, the boy is torturing the friar. Yeah. So, one of the issue, one of the interesting things, because the, 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 the reason that it's hard, I think, for us to recuperate the friar is because of what the friar agrees to do for the stepdame, which is to go out Take him out in a field and beat him. Beat Jack's ass until yeah. he... It's not good. You know, it's, it's, so it's, it's an unkind thing for him to do, but one of the points that a number of the sort of articles that I looked at that talked about this as children's literature did was to try and historicize the treatment of children Mm. in the Middle Ages. And what they were suggesting is that the sort of corporeality of the punishment of the treatment of children that we find so off-putting would, in its own time, not have struck us as particularly... So a friar beating your kid would have been norms? Well, I don't know if it would have been a norm, but it wouldn't have been as sort of insane as it seems. Yeah, because it does sound shocking. It does. But at the time, it wouldn't have. And I mean, I think it's worth keeping in mind that within my lifetime and yours, there were still public schools in the United States where corporal punishment was still licit, right? Where you would be able to spank a kid or something like that. I I had a colleague who got a job 
in the South somewhere, I'm not going to name names, say, says, whatever, they had to sign a waiver. Right. That said, we will not beat your child at school. That's right. And if you sign that waiver, every other kid at the school will beat your child. <laughs> so it really is a kind Six of, of one, it really is a 50, 50 proposition. It's so, terrible. So the, corp- the so the, the punishment here, the the, the and, and the way that Jack is treated, the, the treatment of the child, yep. right? That treatment is I think less shocking to a 15th century readership I hear as it is to us. And I, I think the you. friar's role here as a figure of the institutional church, as a figure of discipline, as a figure of... Authority. Authority as a figure yeah. of the sort of creation of knowledge to some degree, or at least yeah. the control of knowledge. Um, you know, I think that there is a way that we can read the, the friar as doing his job here. And he is roundly punished for that. I think the reason that... If that's the case, though, I think the poem is still subversive, and I think it's subversive precisely in the way that it authorizes the child's voice and the child's needs, mm. right? The, 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 the child, and, and, and some of this is um, Melissa Rain's article that, I'm, that, that has been really influential in how I think about this, um, but some of it is really just sort of on the face of the, of the poem, right? The child is not particularly intelligent. He's not particularly crafty. He is not Jack and the Giant Killer. I mean, he might become that. He's just a kid. He's very childish. And he comes across as childish up to and including his three stupid wishes where it's literally like a bad Calvin and Hobbes strip. He's like, oh my God, I wish my mom would fart. Like, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous, right? And so that recuperation of that childlike voice, I think, undercuts... In some ways, it undercuts the sympathy that we can feel for the adults because we're invited to, I think, recall that sort of childishness in our own way, in that sort of innocence. Okay. Right? So, and the the other thing that I would add, um, and 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 when we're thinking about the voice here, and and here again, I'm I'm drawing from this puerile justice, the voice of the boy in, in Jack and his stepdom, the the the, the distinction between the. Um, the boy's speech, right? His and 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 the dame's farting, right? That's a kind of speech too. Chaucer gives us that, obviously, sure. in the Miller's Tale and in the um, Breaking Wind uh, is a sound, and in the and in the um, oh my god, I wrote an article on this, and it's, it's House of Fame, not the Friar's Tale, the well, Summoner's Tale. Jesus, David, um, right? And and in the Friar's Tale as well, actually. I mean, the the, the, the this the, the the farting is. Um, not the summer tale. I've, I've lost. I've lost my mind, you guys. Um, but th- th- that's a kind of speech. Um, and so when Jack, when Jack forces through his sort of magic gift to make the stepmother fart, he takes away her authority to speak, and it replaces that speech with this inarticulate, the lower body stratum sound, is right? yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I ended up not sympathizing with either the, the stepdame or the, the friar because I think the, the, the poem invites me and almost insists on my sympathy with the child. I, I think that's true. And I, that's why I posed it as a question. Like, can we recuperate a, a sympathetic reading for the, the, for the friar? Um, especially given what you just told me, which is, you know, the, the, the violence that the friar is asked to commit against the boy, which he doesn't, um, is, is, if it's not as shocking for a 15th century audience, you know, then, then we see this friar, like, like, brutalized by this kid's whims. Yeah. Right? 
um, and and done so at length. You know, the descriptions of the friar are pretty brutal. So it's, well, I mean, it, those are the most they're, they're the lengthiest descriptions in the poem. I mean, it yeah. lavishes as much attention on the way that this friar is. Yeah tortured yeah. like beat you know he's he's in the he's in the brambles the briars whatever it was i can't remember it's now briar briar damn it um you know he's being torn to bits shredded uh by the by the by the by the spines he is bleeding you know it is he's he's legitimately terrified yeah when when jack is going to play the flute again he's like god no like he's yeah well and even when and, and, and even when he takes precautions you know they didn't give him a helmet no. so he just yeah. smashes his head and so i wonder like what is it not not just can we recuperate that reading but what would it mean if we could right to this narrative because i do feel like it's on its face sort of like anti-fraternal but then in its performance it's more complex and interesting than that i agree with that and i i mean i I do think, I mean, it's almost as though the anti-fraternalism is just a kind of given um, with this kind yeah, of... Yeah, I mean, you I mean it's, it's an assumption. Right. It's and and so, so it, like I, it, doesn't, it doesn't play that up. It doesn't develop it in any kind of interesting way. Yeah. I don't think it undercuts it in any kind of interesting way. I mean, I think if there is a friar in the tale, the friar is an object of fun. The friar is, yeah. you know, is an object of, of abuse eventually in this one. Um, so I don't, I don't know. I mean, it didn't invite me to recuperate it, but it, it, it didn't occur to me to recuperate it, but it is an interesting question. So here's another question that has to do with another medieval literary tradition, mm. another discourse in medieval literature, um, which is to say, um, I wonder, I mean, so, you know, you read the passage where the stepdom is called a shrew. Yeah. And by the end, she is chastened. Yes. She is brought in line and she's, she, she's very amiable and kind to Jack yep. after she's been fart blasted for... <laughs> Two days or whatever. Fart blasted and danced. And, you know, yeah. Yeah. So I was, I'm interested in the anti-feminist aspects of this narrative as well, right? Like, this is a kind of weird, inverted taming of the shrew. Yes, it is. Instead of the husband taming the unruly mother, or sorry, wife, we have a, a the boy taming a excessive stepmom or yeah. I don't mean you know I don't if that's the right I mean I guess that's exactly what happens but and so I don't know if that really fits the you know whatever Arn Schnockenberger's number of folktale whatever but like this does seem to be a, a story about a woman being brought into line yes by yeah. a boy yeah right and I, I I thought that was a I mean so again anti-feminist literature is rife in the middle ages is this just participating in that and if it is it's just in a sort of weird interesting way i think it's participating in it i mean i i think that again if we think of this as a kind of middle class uh text it is a it is a kind of carrying of those norms within a sort of emergent social stratum mm -hmm. um and i think that it is you know if you look at the other tales that are collected with this text i mean the clerk's tale is in particular in, in this manuscript horrifically um anti-feminist anti oh, yeah. you know under the guise of being you know a, a celebration of patient griselda but well, you course, know that yeah. is a woman who is i mean she's not brought in the line she's always in line um but it is a, a celebration of her 
patience, her meekness, her sufferance of um, a tyrannical husband. Yeah. Um, the Prioress's tale um, is anti-Semitic. It's about a kid. Horrifically, it is about a kid. But the Prioress's prologue, which is also contained in this manuscript, is, about is also Mary. about the Virgin Mary. It's also about yeah. meekness and submission and so forth. So I do think there is a kind of through line within the tales in the manuscript, mm -hmm. or at least many of the tales in the manuscript, um, that would be... I guess corrective or you know keeping women in their place. So does it participate in an anti-feminist tradition? Absolutely, I think it does. I think it's really interesting that it's the child, and I don't know what the stakes of that are. Yeah, um, I don't know what the stakes of it being. The I mean, it's obviously not the child's mother, and so the, you know, the, I don't know what the stakes are of it being a stepmother. If it is, if it is a kind of implicit warning against you know, the, the kind of women that would marry you after you get married once. It, it's, it, I mean, it, it participates in, in I mean, the wicked stepmother kind of is a tradition. Is a, it's a folkloric yeah. trope. I mean, it's just motif. It comes back time and again. So, so I could see it just participating in that folkloric trope of, of the punishment of the wicked stepmother. Yeah. Um, but here it is just interesting to see the sort of like woman put in her place. Corrected. It's. I mean, it's a. This text. You talked about its radical destabilizations of things, but it's. It's conservative. Yeah. It's. It's. It is. It is. It's a conservative text. The thing that is interesting is that that there is a way that you could read this where you could suggest that. And again, I'm. As I say this out loud, I. You know, my cancellation is imminent. I suppose. <laughs> But like, there is a way that this tale proposes that Jack is doing here with the help of his magical hermit friend, what his father can't or won't do. Uh, right? So Jack is... Taking care of business that his dad won't take care yeah, of. And Jack's, you know, the father is a pushover. The father lets the stepmother, you know, send Jack out into the field. He clearly does not object or at least not strenuously enough when Jack, you know, gets sent with a bad lunch and, and when the stepmother, you know, beats him for, you know, eating too much meat at dinner. Yeah. Right? I mean, the, 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 the father is in a position where he is, he seems to allow himself to be sort of dominated by this woman. And it is Jack then who sort of needs to take these matters into his own hands which he does um which he does inadvertently I mean, but does, yeah. It, yeah so i mean i think there is a there is a way in which in which he in which this tale serves as a corrective both to to her but also to fathers right i right. mean this is this is not the this yeah is no the no you want, i agree right? with that yeah that's a good point that's a great point so i don't i don't know i mean again i'm not you know, it is it is anti-feminist in 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 all kinds of terrible ways. Um, so I was, I, I'm not sort of advocating for this, but I, I do think that's the discourse that it's participating in. Here. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, in the other part of it, in terms of thinking of it as a corrective, like if we are correcting adults, right? Mm -hmm. um, this is where the Pied Piper aspect of it, yeah, another folkloric narrative, I guess, enters my thinking, right? Which is which is you know the Pied Piper story, which is. Earlier medieval German, not German. continental. Hamlin. It, yes, it's 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 a different place, space, time. I'm not sure if it had any truck in the middle in the English Middle Ages, but it's the kind of narrative where the adults, you know, they they contract the piper, mm -hmm. you know, get rid of the rats. The rats are plaguing the, the city, 
Rats away. <laughs> it all comes back. It comes back to, to rats, rats away. away. Reader, listener, if you are our one listener, you will know that we had an episode on a Middle English poem called Rats Away. If you're enjoying this episode, you might enjoy you may, yeah. season two, episode nine, it's, Rats Away. Are you sure that's the one? I am not. Okay. Um, but then they try to screw over the piper. Or they don't pay him. And he takes away all their children. Just locks them up in a cave. Mm. Is that what he does? Well, I guess it depends on which version you're reading. There's probably I a million think versions. In, in, in some versions. So like the like, adults are punished yeah. for bad behavior. So And it, it's the same narrative here. Um, and, and so it's just like this weird folkloric sort of, you know, justice that gets yeah. meted out throughout this poem yeah. in apparently in other folkloric narratives as well. Yeah. Um, which, which speaks to, I can see why it would be a middle-class text, right? Yeah. This is, this is oral storytelling that would be, you know, people would be aware of these kinds of tales. Yeah. And so what, one of the things that's interesting to me about this, um, is that you're talking about moments, um, in which this text sort of reaches into a folkloric tradition, mm. that it reaches into a kind of, um, you know, sort of a common literary vernacular, uh, and, 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 and it constructs its text in yeah. those ways. But there are a few moments, um, where it seems to reach toward what we would think of as more literary sources. I'm interested in the fact that the uh, friar is tied to a post. Um, I don't, you know, know that there's anything other than a coincidence um, that brings I thought about that, that brings too. the Odyssey into this. Um, but there are also a number of references that smack of Chaucer. Obviously, Chaucer is a big fan of farting, um, and sure. uh, the, the sort of fart that the that the wife unleashes here um, is of a piece with the fart in the Miller's Tale is of a piece with the fart in the Summoner's Tale. But there is an almost direct, and I see if I can find it here, there is an almost direct quote from the uh, Reeves Tale. Oh, the Reeve. As well. Oh, the Reeve. Um, which is another Ew. sort of terrifyingly anti-feminist tale about keeping things in line, uh, among other things. Um, but this is on line, uh, it's at line 412. Um, and this is when Jack asks his father if he can stop playing. And Jack says, make an end when thou wilt. Make an end when you're done. In faith, this was the merriest fit that e hard this seven year. Oh. Um, and that is oh. what the wife says fit. after um, she is bedded by one of the two students, unbeknownst to her, in the dark and all of that. Yes. So I'm wondering if while this seems to reach into a kind of common pool of folk motifs and folk tales, mm. there are moments where it also reaches upward. And if that would seem to suggest, again, its kind of purchase in this sort of middle-class environment. Is it doing that work, or are those just coincidences that we can sort of write off and say, look, this is not doing that kind of work? I don't know. I mean, I would stay, I mean, in a more I mean, sort of... They wouldn't probably have access to the Odyssey. We don't, we don't have... They have Homer in the 15th century. The, I mean, you, you had Gavin Douglas, right? You had that's the Aeneid, um, and then who did? It was Chapman that did Homer. So I guess they wouldn't have had Homer. Was, in, does it? Yeah, yeah. So they yeah. wouldn't have had Homer. So that that it, they would have had Chaucer. They would have had Chaucer. And, and, Cha and that narrative again is about a comeuppance. You know, yeah. this is another chastising or punishing of somebody who is you know, too heavy handed and controlling and authority. I mean, I, I guess that that would be another a point of, you know, intersection that, I mean, I have to say though, that, I mean, this may, and that may be an illusion that Mary fit. It may be an illusion to the Reeves. I, I, I didn't even notice that, but I think that's really interesting. Um, you know, 
the tale, this this poem, Jack and a Septim, generally speaking, not very, I mean, in terms of its writing, like, it's not a very well, it's not a very well-written, no, no, no. no poetic tale. Oh, no. It's just plot. It's, I mean, there's not, a, no. there's nary a metaphor or simile. There's, I mean, there is, it's, it's, it's just like then this happened and then this happened and then this happened. I mean, it, you know, and it, it's it's an interesting, catchy story. But like, this is not an author to whom I'd be like. I mean, I guess this is me being the snob. This is why. This, this is why. This is why it's a fail because I'm literally failing. Um, but yeah, no, I, I. So I mean, it'd be interesting if it was an allusion to Chaucer and the Merry Fit. I mean, I guess the other possibility is that. Chaucer's Reeves' tale is drawing from that tradition, and 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 it's, it, yeah. know, that phrase is one that is you know. But they both echo tradition. a moment of non-consent. Yep. To a physically, you know, rigorous outing. Yeah. Uh, it's weird that the other part about non-consent to a figurous rigorous, rigorous outing is is something that I came across when I was doing my cocktail research, trying to find something to match this poem to, and that is. That maybe you know more about this than me do, my dude, than it because it's a later medieval phenomenon, and that is the dancing manias of the later Middle Ages. I, I know that they exist, but I don't know much about so them. So, starting very early, but really picking up in the later 14th century, into the 15th, and into the 17th century, yeah, were these sort of it's collective con- contagious. social contagious dancing manias, yeah. including the Dancing Plague of 1518, which occurred in <laughs> Strasbourg. Yes. Right? But they, they happen, but they're mo- all the examples I could find were continental, right? So I don't know if, if it really even touches the English tradition. Um, these dancing manias, which are related to, sometimes they're attributed to diseases like St. Vitus Dance, mm-hmm. right? Which is an actual disease that's now been diagnosed. Um, they Tarantism, which is obviously the you know inspiration for this cocktail. Um, they're called Saint John's Dance. These are like social sort of mob moments yeah. where people start publicly dancing and cannot stop until they collapse. They collapse. And it's like, what is a? That's just weird as fuck. Like, what is going on in the you know fifteen oh two or fourteen thirty eight or whenever this is going on? Like, what is going on? That, that, that that's happening and there's all kinds of crazy theories oh it's the classic ergotism you know they ate the fungus from the weed or you know right. like all these different you know theoretical models but like this this is clearly a narrative that would overlap with them right like yeah. this is a narrative that would like because this is a, a whole community dancing around until they're exhausted and and can barely hang on anymore because of this boy's flute. Yeah. Like what what is these are what are they what is it why would this poem be borrowing in, into that it's cultural narrative? I don't know. I mean I, I don't know of any dancing manias in England. I certainly I, I don't. I mean it's it's possible that there are some and I, I this is not something I know a whole lot about. I mean I know again I know of them. But So Dan Brown, if you're listening, right. <laughs> could you please let us know do you know anything about the dancing manias in England? Because I don't know anything about it. You think Dan Brown's gonna get to us on this? He's a great wa- researcher. I have been waiting. <laughs> I have been waiting. Stop it. I have been <laughs> waiting to hear from somebody. Every once in a while, somebody will write a nice note. It's very nice. Um, not that I'm begging. Um, but but I, I do. Um, I do. 
I, I do think, if, if anything, it speaks to the sort of broader folk sort of motif. Yeah. Right? I mean, the, the, popular culture. That there, is, there is so much of this that does tie into these sort of Germanic folktales like the Pied Piper of Hamelin. There are mm. so many sort of aspects of this that speak to, you know, traditions that are continental that yeah. are you know that are that are very very international that are yeah. these folk motifs um the dance in the briars and the three wishes and the three rash boons and all of that kind yeah. of stuff right and so um you know i think maybe it's a maybe it, it's a part of that that it, that it that it that it, it draws from from that tradition and that, that might be why, why it intersects but i don't know of any of that in england i don't um, either i just thought it was really interesting that is. there's this phenomenon throughout the yeah it's a really ages, great question and i don't later middle ages of these like dancing manias and this is clearly describing a dance mania and I don't know what those are as social phenomenon or what they meant poetically. Me either. But well, I think listen, it's time. I was just going to say, I think it's time, time to rank. To and rank. I get to rank. You do. And I'm going to rank this on a scale from one to three boons. There you go. Right? Bow and arrow, bow and arrow and flute, bow and arrow, flute, and fart. Farting stepmother. Farts, farting stepmother. <laughs> um, and um, you know what? I have to say, fun. Yep. Interesting. Yep. Short. I know. Oh, it's, it's a mercy. It is. It is. Incre- I don't. It's incredibly teachable. Like I really feel like you could work this in, in various forms. I agree. I think this is. It's a, a, it's a companion piece. It's a wild narrative, and and I think that I don't know. I'm gonna give it three out of three. Boons. Are you really? Yeah, I am. I mean, it's not. It's not poetically okay. blowing my mind. But, I mean, it is a weird ass, and it's complex, because it really does seem funny and comic. It's a board, as Melissa Furrow calls it. Yeah. But it is really a disturbing narrative. It is. I mean, Um, it's not... I guess it's like the Reeves tale. It's kind of horrifying in a lot of ways. So... I'm giving it three out of three. Three out of three boons. Um, I was gonna give it two. I guess I should just stick to my rating. I'm yeah, you give don't it have to two be two out of three boons. Um, I enjoyed it for all the reasons that you did. I really liked it. Um, I think it raises some interesting questions. I like its contexts. Um, and I, I agree with you. I think that, that pedagogically, this is an absolute win. Um, so yeah. Hey, so Dan Brown, when you're teaching your medieval literature course, that's right. Bust out some of Jack and his step Don't Dame. forget your friends at the Canterbury. Your turn Tales. to rate the cocktail. I am going to give the cocktail. I really liked this cocktail a lot. Um, I liked the bitterness of it. I liked I liked the change when I mixed it. Mm. Um, I would have actually... I liked the sort of orange on the nose. I, I want a little more orange in the mouth. Yeah. Like, I don't know if I would have maybe even mixed in a little Cointreau. Or orange like, bitters. Give it, or some orange bitters. I thought this was an excellent cocktail. I think it's an excellent base for other cocktails. I'm giving this the full three. Oh, nice. Um, so solid work on this. Thank you for bringing this to my mouth. Um, I actually really enjoyed it. I'm going to say something really strange, not strange, which is I think I liked it better before I mixed the Ango, bit, the Ango syrup. Really? In. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I love Angostura bitters. Love them. Like, I think they're indispensable but i was really uh the the way that it was playing before i i didn't dislike it after but i just think i, I was intrigued by it more at first i think i would have preferred to drink it like the whole thing and then start getting more and more syrup at the end okay so right? the mix was the bad move for you for me yeah. I do like I you know how like in in yep. um where you have a sugar cube at the bottom of an espresso and mm. it's bitter 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 and it gets sweeter 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 as you drink. God, I love that. That's pretty great, right? It's great. I wonder if that would have been good. Right. Anyway, thanks for listening, listener. Wait, you didn't rate it. Oh, 3 out of 3. 
Oh, okay. I'm good too. <laughs> okay. Hey, Dan, thanks for listening. Yes, appreciate Dan, it. Yeah, we, we do appreciate it. Um, um, and I'm still waiting for our invitation to Scotland too. I know, Dame. Yeah, I know. It would remember. help if we remembered her name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know. St. Andrews is calling. Though. I know, though. I um, we, um, we here at the Canterbury Fails Enterprises are looking forward to uh, next, next, uh, our next outing. It'll be something in Old English. Uh, and uh, thanks for listening. Yeah. Take care, guys.